Hi, I'm Luke Campbell, and I work for a small wine company, and he's Luke Morris, and... Uh, I have got us an extra person voted in the Hottest 100. So we're kicking, we're going. And together, we're Luke's Talk Wine. Talking all things wine and booze and some popular culture. Think when to drink, why we drink it, and the culture that surrounds drinking. Hello, Luke. G'day, Campbell. How's it going? Oh, unbelievable. Any better, I'd be dangerous. Oh, why so? What would, what, if you were better than now, what would you start doing? Tearing down society because you can see through the walls of its fabric. If I'd be any better, I'd be dangerous, meaning full well that I am not exactly tearing down the society, but I'm doing wild and crazy things like day drinking, for instance. <laughs> um, I'm out, outside the norm, let me tell you. But hey, we're back. Oh, right. we're going to have to. There's, there's a tough. Let's broach that in right after you you lay us up for what's happening today. Absolutely. Well, it's season three, episode six, and this week we've got this week's topic is the world's weirdest slash oldest wine regions. And beyond that, we've got a question. Actually, Dan's a repeat offender. Actually, Dan from North Melbourne writes, "What is what are." the next big things in wine. So we've got a couple of curlies this week, but as always, and especially this week is no different, we ask, Luke Morris, <laughs> what's been happening in your wine world this week, pal? Uh, well, I, I had a beer day drinking yesterday because I did a, um, a a big cycle for MS Australia. And uh, so I went to the pub afterwards and had a beer in like noon. And I thought that was going crazy. What day drinking? What do you mean you've had been having day drinking, Campbell? Well, it just got to me, um, you know, about the middle of the day on a, any regular Sunday. In fact, it was this gone Sunday, just gone. And I just felt like a drink in the middle of the day. And I never, ever do it. And I thought, well, what's stopping me? Nothing. And I was just a rebel without a cause, Luke Morris. I was popping corks all over the place. Shiraz, Pino. Really? How many? What? How many? Who are you with? Uh, my three boys. They weren't drinking much. Much? They're like <laughs> 10. How old are they? 10 and, 10 and 6. 10 and 6. Like I said, they weren't drinking much. The three boys. Just so that people know that the two of them are very closely related. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've got a set of twins, but that's neither here nor there. They they weren't drinking much, so it was just just me. You know, uh-huh. I didn't say I drank them all. I just drank some. Oh, okay, cool. So you mm. just decided that you, that Shiraz was enough to muster, so you went on to the Pinot, or what was the? Yeah, I just you, you know life is too short to drink bad wine, so I just I couldn't find exactly what was uh, ticking my fancy, so I just kept pulling corks, found something I did like. Oh, cool. Mm. I suppose that's the perks of having. Were they samples or were they bottles that you? Had you of your own? Well, the Pinot was actually out of my cellar, but the other two wines were samples, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, mm. so that's sort of the perk. When you get a few samples, you, you can, you're not anticipating that it's a bottle that you've savoured and you want to share. And all. It's, it's a bit of work involved. I suppose you worked. That was you working, was it? Oh, working it your way working through on, a few bottles. It was me working, absolutely, on, on, on a Sunday, the, the, the Sabbath. I was working hard. Oh, no. Oh, Campbell, I'm I, I, sorry for you, man. I understand what it's like to have to run a small business. That's that's tough. Yes, it is tough, but we got through it. Okay. 
Good. So you've made it through to Monday. Survived. What what did you have? Was it did do you want to disclose were the samples good enough to uh stock or host uh, for? The, the or Shiraz did... wasn't, so that will remain nameless. Oh, okay. Um the Cabernet it's inexplicable was... happiness Shiraz. <laughs> yes, that's right. Um <laughs> absolutely. The Cabernet was, but as you know, as you well know, and the listeners will know, I'm in a bit of a Cabernet mood at the minute. It was the old bond Cabernet Reserve from Seville Estate in the Yarra Valley. Oh, wow. And it was a straight variety, actually. If For those who saw our recent uh, Thursday Thursday with Dylan McMahon live on Instagram on the third Thursday of every month, we interviewed Dylan, who's the great-grandson of uh, Peter McMahon, who founded, who actually founded um, Seville Estate in the Yarra. Yep. Anyway, I went searching for a, we ha, we had his nineteen, and I went searching actually late last week for something a little bit older. I can only find the seventeen. So uh, yeah, I pulled the cork on that, and that was um, it was just utterly delicious. Single variety Cabernet, like the nineteen that we had on the show, uh, but just had a little bit more depth and uh, yeah, breadth and lovely tannins. And then uh, the the Pinot. Was just just on, just on Seville yes. Estate, just while we're yes. talking about them, I've heard yep. that I've heard their name popping up quite a bit lately. And to be honest with you, they're not a winery that I know a lot about historically. So have they hit a renaissance? Or what's, what's well it? in two thousand? It's a good call. In two thousand and nineteen, they were James Halliday's Winery of the Year. Ah, okay. Uh the Viticulturist is actually ex Mount Mary, who's been with Dylan for a while. Right. And Dylan himself is quite, you know, a, a well-heeled winemaker. Apart from growing up in and around the estate, he's worked, you know, across Europe in Alsace and Spain, and uh, he's also worked in, in further down in France as well. A few other places, Germany. He made Riesling in Germany. Yep. And they make they, so they just so this is really maybe in the last five years or so that he's come back, or has he been yes. recreating Seville Estate with the help of Mount Mary Viticulturalist in the last five years? That's pretty cool. Yeah. So it's kind of that great lineage, I guess, he's hanging on to, which is really mm-hmm. beautiful. And he is just – he's brought it back to only estate fruit, so whatever they make on the estate they use, they don't buy in any. And moreover, they don't sell any. Um, I was really fascinated by it too. He's a – He's a, he's a younger guy. I couldn't tell his age, but he's younger than you and I. Um, okay, so got... that's that, that's mm. half the population, to be honest. <laughs> very true. We're, very true. We're on the other side of the age barrier, so it's yes. Um, but no, he's just he has really taken on a, on an upward trajectory. So it doesn't surprise me that you you've heard, um, yeah, you, you've heard about it. No. Yeah. Yeah. So, and what was the Pinot? Uh, well, the Pinot was none other than Clarence House in 2020. So this year, Anna Pooley and Justin Bubb uh, at Pooley Estate won Winery yes. of the Year. Ah. They also, and everybody has just been swallowing up their wines at, at an alarming rate, which I, I love their wines, but they make another wine from Clarence House diagonally across the road in the Coal River Valley. Um, and they produced this, I've just got a bottle of their 2020 Pinot, and it was just just all dark, dark plums, charcoal, black pastel, earthy, in, in that real dark spectrum of Pinot Noir, which I happen to love, um, very savoury. So yep. I just got stuck into that, and it was just, there was a, there was a problem with it. Um, there was not it, enough in the bottle? It didn't come in Magnum. 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, classic. It was one of those ones. Oh, but uh, I, that, I that could it. go either way because I thought you were going to say that it was in Cork or something like that. Or the... No, not at all. I just, I just really, I really love the just yeah just had a real energy about the, the pinot and I, I love that in the wine and yeah underrated it, and the difference between pooley is there's no whole bunch or distemming or whatever any of that sort of stuff and clarence house faces faces south east where all the pooley vineyards generally face north so it's kind of um yeah it, it's a very different wine hi this is luke morris from luke's talk wine i've written some books so visit luke morris ha dot com dot au go there see the books buy one support the podcast that's luke morris ha dot com dot au l-u-k-e-m-o-r-r-i-s-h-a dot com dot au have a great day anyway that that was me what about you so besides um pedaling pedaling your legs off uh in the ms ride uh, what else has been going on what's been happening in your uh, just, just looking at little avenues where I can share the uh, Hottest One Hundred voting form. So, hopefully, we've got a few listeners. I haven't, ch- I haven't really checked. I do know that I, I shared it in a group chat room, and we got a friend of the show, Mick Nippard. Ooh, sent shout in out to Mick. A a vote, and I'm sure Lloydie will at some point send in a vote. We'll have to remind him he doesn't check the group chat all the time. Um. I've sent it to a few people at work. Are we edging closer to that magic number of 20? <laughs> I think we're around 15. I still want to get to 50 before my old. I want to get there. Um, I want to get that 50, 50 marks my target. Fair enough. But oh, there's probably some Facebook groups. Yeah, yeah Wine that, Lovers Unite or. Yeah, uh, there's Wine Lovers Unite. Get it into your wine or. Get us into your wine. Who's that? Well, I don't know. I'm just saying, you said there's probably some Facebook groups. I'm just I'm just randomizing some names that are probably out there. I, I don't know. Oh. <laughs> there's yeah. only so much social underage drinkers of Australia. There's probably a, a group like that too. But I'm looking for groups that actually exist and that we should put it in, mate. Oh right, that old chestnut, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Up. Practical things. I'm you know, as much as I'm the comedian on this outfit, I seem to be the one that's organizing anyway. But um, have we got yeah no I'll, I'll share it on some Facebook. That's what I'll do. I'll do that. Do I'll that. try that this week. See if we can unearth, you know, some ra- or, random listening audience. Yeah, um, random listening audience, and you, the listener. I know that I know you're out there. I know we've got a few people who listen. I'm pretty sure Shieldsy has. Yeah. Um, I think Chris has. Uh, Dan. Yeah, I, Dan I was in. Dan would have. Dan, Dan would have. Dan would have. He would have been there. He's firing questions at us. He would have had to have been in there. Dan in North Melbourne, we're talking to you. Yeah. I'm trying to think of somebody else who's written in a few times. Is it Wobbo? Is, Wobbo sounds like a listener. We've probably got a, a listener named Wobbo. Yes. And what about, uh, was it uh, Rochelle from Surrey Hills or, or, or Bree in Caulfield South? There's a couple oh. there. Yeah, yeah. I, haven't looked, I haven't seen their names pop up. So you've, you've been uh. name-checked, Rochelle and Bree. <laughs> <laughs> I tell we'll you see what, how we go. I tell you what, I will know if if Rochelle or Bree sends in a a vote because mostly it's people named Mark and Adam and Stephen and John. Those sorts of names seem to be voting at the moment. Rochelle oh, and yeah. Bree, we want to hear your views. 
Yes, we do. We want we want a most comprehensive view across the channels. Speaking of comprehensive views. Oh yeah. Segway. Lay it lay it on me. <laughs> some of the some of the world's weirdest slash oldest wine regions. I know you've got a couple up your sleeve. Um oh, lay it know, on me. Okay, so I think the oldest in the world is the um is port. Yeah, the Duro. The Duro is definitely the oldest. So it's actually not just referred to as Oporto anymore. It's referred to as the Alto Duro. But, yeah, I'm with you. I'm picking up what you're putting down. Yeah, I think that's the oldest because you just triggered in my mind, when do we start defining wine regions, particularly in Australia? Like someone like Heathcote separated from the greater GI of Bendigo, Bendigo only in what the when did it was um Ron Lawton who spearheaded that campaign and it, it would be as late as the 90s I reckon yeah but it's not it's not old nor weird it's conventional. No, no. yeah but yeah, I'm yeah. just I'm just I'm just laying those foundations that when we say something's old or weird like a lot of the regions you might think about I don't know when the Rhone Valley was actually defined as a region or when it was broken up or i don't think italy's that old really when you think about the um the marcation of boundaries and requirements they're all in the well i I can tell you for a fact i can tell you for a fact that the laws of italy the goria laws were laid down so their doc laws were laid down in 1974 adjusted in 79 and again in the mid 80s 85 i know that for a fact so france would have been earlier than that germany i know the the regions of germany and their pradigat system was like the the sugar levels was laid down like you know around the turn of the century like that, that kind of um age worthy material but i'm talking about like so, uh, what I should have said this week's topic should have been oh, yeah. the less the less conventional regions like the Alto Duro is a good one, of course, like Oporto, yep. Svartland in South Africa. Like we, oh. we we hear about the renowned Stellenbosch, but but like Svartland is that expansive kind of landscape you actually see in all the pictures that stretches from glorious beaches to you know almost the the centre of South Africa and actually has some of South Africa's most revered wineries. But what about... Well, that makes me think of something stupid like Tasmania is a GI. It is not broken up into north or south. So you just have the whole of Tasmania, which is, you know, when we think about regions, you, you tend to think about it in terms of distinctive characteristics that define that region or that terroir. Yeah, you can't throw that bit of chalk at all of Tasmania and expect it to stick. There's there's, there's too much variation. Yes, I could. Uh, I can. I think there's I, a lot I, of variation. If I, I'll put Tasmania as a weird region, Tasmania, you weird. Well, it, it's probably a less. You're right. It's probably a less conventional region because if people think of Australia, they don't automatically kind of. Gravita- they gravitate towards the Barossa or, you know, the, the Hunter or Margaret River. They don't generally gravitate towards Tassie. You're right. I guess yeah. it's, um, yeah, to be kind of left of centre. But um, speaking of left of centre, what about Lebanon? Ah, that's a country. 
Yeah, well, it's, it's, <laughs> it's a very big wine region as well. <laughs> That's a huge one. It's huge to just define a country as a region. Yeah. So Chateau Moussard is the only one I can think of that comes out of Lebanon, but there's others. Well, Chateau Moussard is probably the, the biggest. Like they, They've got a cult-like following amongst wine professionals. But why, you know, while Chateau Moussard's popularity within the wine industry you know, it is there. It's also, it's got, there's many other producers. We, I guess we just don't see a lot of them, but it's yeah. high, you know, it's high altitude cultivation. It's dry farming. They, they do all the same stuff, you know, organics, hand harvesting. It just happens to be in a massive war zone, right? So I reckon <laughs> that would, that would qualify as some varied terroir and a less conventional wine region. Oh yeah, but then, but then you've if you after that sort of thing, you're looking at people who are on the equator. Like there's there is wine that comes out of uh, I was going to say Japan, and not quite. Oh, they're pretty close to the equator. Anyway, Japan produces wine. That's a weird yeah. area. We could probably yeah. get Mick Nippard, who lives in Japan, on the show to talk about Japanese wine, even though when I've spoken to him about it, he is fairly dismissive of the quality just because the climate isn't quite suited. Yeah. But there are places, there's someone that does two vintages a year. I can't remember where it is. You might. But there's someone yeah, there that is, does do is. two vintages a year because the climate is so warm. As soon as they cut off the fruit, they're, they're close enough to you know, re, is re that, that's not and Romania and Moldova. Don't they do two vintages a year? Oh, maybe with a dollop of antifreeze in between. No, I don't think. <laughs> no, I don't think Romania does two vintages a year. I don't think. I think they, they make some good wine, by the way. I've had some Romanian wine when I was at an expo in um, uh, London once. And well, well Ro- Romania is a big deal. In, in fact, do you want to know where? Here's a question for you. Do you know what? I want to know where the world's biggest wine cellar is. Is it in Romania? It is in well Moldova, moreover, but yes. And you want to know how big it is? Get this. You want to know how big it is? is it, and only because so this is as a seller or as a vet or what? what? As a seller, so the world's so biggest storage, wine collection. Storage wine collection. Okay. Storage. Yeah. Like you reckon James Halliday's cellar was big at twenty nine thousand bottles. Do you want to know the biggest wine collection? Well, you've already stated that it's in Romania. It is in <laughs> Moldova. Do you want to know how many bottles it is, Luke Morris? Here's a bit of trivia. Okay, uh, can I have a guess? Yeah, go on. Can go you on. give you got, me any you, any kind of hint? Uh, you've got nine guesses and you still won't get it. Oh, Struth. Okay. <laughs> All right. So, so, uh, so if, if it's more than twenty nine thousand of holidays, mm-hmm. can I go? I'll just go fifty thousand higher. Higher. Hundred thousand. Higher. Two hundred thousand. Higher. Oh, Struth. It's. Is it basically the size of Moldova? Basically, <laughs> it, is, is it? it is 1.5 million bottles. Wow. Who's, why, how, Would why? you believe it? Who's, who, that's not private collection. That's not the James Halliday of Moldova just kicking back on his <laughs> Just, just squir- squirreling Moldovian Shiraz away. <laughs> And then, it's, wait, imagine that. Imagine it's that only that. five yeah. euro a pop. I'm, I'm losing money if I sell it. 
1.4 million bottles of Shiraz and then you work out that you love Pinot. Be, you'd be <laughs> oh, that gutter, sounds like you? every seller in Australia. Yeah. <laughs> well, exactly. Truth, all right. You'd get to that and just go, oh, gee, I'm not really into this anymore. No, nah, nah, I'm just kidding. One and a half million bottles? One and a half million bottles, that's right. So R- Romania and Moldova are kind of on the front load, front line of that old world countries. There's, there's been wine produced there, like, amazing amount of years you know so like is, it, is is this 1.5 million just do you know is that age stocked or is this just someone storing it to sell next year like is that there no it's a collection it I is don't a, know it's an actual collection it's oh. an actual collection yeah wow. so, um, i don't know too much more about that but when I, I remember when i was doing some research for our secrets of selling uh classes which we took on a roadshow around the country a few years ago for Vinified. I remember that coming up and just going, wow. And I remember doing a little bit of a deep dive in it, but not really getting to the bottom of the, yeah, the purpose. Like you, I wanted to know the real purpose of collecting. Like, are they purchasing these wines? I did find out it was a, it wasn't just Romanian wine at 40 cents euro. <laughs> it was a, it was a collection of some of the world's, world's greatest wines. It wasn't just, um, Backyard van de Tabla. It was. Um, it sounds like someone who's um, who's got a record collection that's gone out of hand. Like they need one yes. of everything. Uh, here's here's the bottle of Grange where they put the, the the numbers on back to front, and here's the one where they released it in Japan, and here's the one where they all those sorts of quirky things. <laughs> well, it was very quirky. Um, yeah. So what else you got? Tassie, the Alto Duro, Transylvania, Romania. Transylvania? Um, Did we mention Transylvania? Well, Transylvania, obviously, you know, Romania. So um, nothing to do with uh, Count Dracula. Oh, gosh. uh, But there's a a marketing angle for you. Blood-sucking Shiraz. (laughs) I'm sure they've done it. Uh, They're not waiting for our Sounds more like a Zinfandel. Inexplicable happiness. Uh, who, who else? Who else produces wine in the world that you wouldn't expect they do? Well, I always get I always get um, floored, and not anymore because I've done a little bit of deep diving. But it used to always get me. Obviously, the Hudson Valley is the oldest wine region in in the country, in our country. Obviously, but it always, yeah. it always obviously, but it always gets me about Georgia being the oldest wine producing country in the world. You know, like, and so when you're talking about Georgian wines oh. and. They use the curvy and they stick them in the terracotta cone shape. They stick in the ground, all that sort of stuff. Like that history and that history is just amazing. Have you ever read? Um, so what read it, the, the book Star, Stalin's Finding Stalin's Cellar? Ah, uh, I haven't read it. I've heard it's good. Hmm. It is actually. Um, Tom Baker was a Bordeaux employee uh, and a wine broker. Actually, um, his book. But it's it's centered in and around um, Georgian wine, effectively, because that was where the cellar was at the top of Russia. There, yep, it's a good book. This that makes me think of um, why. Okay, so why aren't those regions more well known today? Do you think it's largely to do with the fact that there was so much commerce from France and with England, and England having a, a financial influence around the world and those places being really well financially organized versus 
what you might refer to the Eastern Bloc, not having its, let's say, shit together and <laughs> establishing its brand. Because you'd think if, you know, Georgia, Romania, having long histories of wine, they should be, why aren't we talking about their version of Bordeaux or their version of Burgundy? Georgia's only got three regions that I know of. Romania's got a few more than that. But, yeah, I guess because it was... You see what I'm coming at. I get what you're coming at. Is it because they were kind of under the cover of darkness for so long? That's a good question. Like, um, I I certainly, when when I did my studies at Wet Set in London, geez, we, we never even touched on Georgia... I mean, heck, we never even touched on organic wine, for goodness sake, <laughs> let alone orange wines and skin nasties and all that sort of stuff. I mean, they mentioned Rome plenty of times, but they didn't mention, you know, all that sort of minimal intervention stuff. It was just, say, certainly never mentioned Transylvania or the wines of Georgia. Um, it's a great question you pose, Mori. I'm not really, I don't know. I can't answer that question. no. Uh, I'm just interested in terms of that that's that wine history. We're talking about these places as being weird, but they've got such a a history. You know, wh- why aren't we importing them to the to the same quantity as uh, German Riesling? And I know why oh, because everyone wants to drink German Riesling. That's the oh no no no. I can I can tell you why we're not importing them. At the, I can tell you. I can answer that question. Oh, that, yeah. there, there just simply isn't as much of them. Um, to import, like a lot of the wines are drunk domestically. I can tell you that that's why we're not. The we're oligarchs of Russia are buying them. Absolutely, they, they are gurgling them. They're, you mm. know, they're pouring baths out of them. Like the the wines are great. Certainly, the wines that I've had, particularly from Georgia, that they, they are really, really great wines and stonkingly good flavour wise. Very different to anything else. But the reason we don't see them is there just simply isn't the quantity for us to get. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but the that's the wine enough. and that's a that's Romania. like so many great wineries even in Australia. Yeah, like there's things that you've probably even there's probably wines that you know of that don't exit Australian shores that are wonderful drops just because there's not enough made of them. Oh, yeah. without a doubt, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you, you see them all the time. I mean, you, you, you and I have spoken about we've spoken about. You know, basket press. Main we're Ridge, about basket press. Yeah, Lakes Folly. Like we're talking about all these. None of these wines get going overseas unless people take them. You know, they're not exported. There's not simply not enough yeah. of them. <laughs> Somebody asked me about getting some Rockford Basket Press on a uh, on a discount deal, and I was, <laughs> yeah. Well, you laugh. I didn't laugh. <laughs> I I just politely explained to them that it's not the sort of thing that needs to slash prices because it that doesn't happen to it. There's not enough stock. It sells out at sell at all. They're not, uh, they're not worried. But there's an adjunct to that. And that is they're not running UNICEF. They're not running what? They're not running UNICEF. They're in it for the money. Like particularly, you know, those guys have spent an eon building, take Windery or um, one of the other brands, but basket press that we've mentioned, yeah, these guys have worked. They've crafted out a niche market for so long, so their wines sell out. You know, they're not available. There just simply isn't as much of them. And I, I would have as a guess the wines of Svartland or Romania or Georgia. But you know, the better known George 
Georgian wines. They, they've just sold out. Those wines come yeah, out of equally. Georgia. Um, yeah. What are they? Uh, the pheasant tears, those skinsy numbers that come out of the Cuervo. Like, you know, 19 bottles or whatever of each of the cuvées come into the country. They're, they're sold out to, you know, could, in an instant. Could we become the Scott Wosley of German wine? And uh, Scott Wosley, for those who, who don't know, is a uh, Spanish wine importer in Australia, I think he would arguably, well, he'd probably be the biggest independent importer of Spanish wine. I don't know anybody yep. else. He would be. Do you reckon there's a there's a uh, a little bit elbow space in the Georgian market throughout Australia for us? Well, I don't think so. There, there's, <laughs> there's a couple of produ- a couple of importers that probably control or have a fairly big uh, stake in that market, but also. Oh. Also, Mori, we are a very small player in that drinker's market. Apart from being respected by the Champenoise, because I think we're fourth on the list at guzzling champagne, everything else, we are like 14th, 24th, like 27th on the list for drinking, you know? So that ah, you, down. Is there a list? Yeah. This, this, yeah, this yeah. I think that'd be fun. I'd, I'd, that'd be a fun game to play in a future episode. Where does Australia rank? Who buys what? Who, who buys what? Rule? Californian Cabernet, or who buys what? Barolo. Is that what you mean? Yeah, where, where we does can all definitely. The, where does all the Burgundy? Because Bordeaux just keeps going up and up, and Burgundy keeps going up and up in price. And I reckon there's going to be a few countries on that list that would shock. Like, yeah, you know, we can do that. Where, where does all where does all the burgundy go? <laughs> where does it go? <laughs> uh, yeah, there'd be a few countries on that list that um, you'd you'd want to know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, stay tuned. That's a future episode. But we're we're currently focused on this episode. What's happening now, Campbell? Well, the the viewer question here, the viewer, I say viewer loosely because this is a podcast. Yeah, you can stare at your your <laughs> you podcast player the, you can stare at the the, sound, the SoundCloud or whatever. Well, yeah. draw, if if you want to draw us a picture of what you think Luke Campbell and Luke Morris look like, you can uh, put that on a piece of paper and then scan it and then send it via email to lukestalkwine at gmail dot com. I really want that to happen. Please make that happen. <laughs> let's see if it does. I want to but in see the meantime, what I look like. <laughs> in the meantime, let's answer Dan's from North Melbourne's question, which is what is, what are, slash, the next big things in wine? Georgian wine, basically. Um, Georgian wine's the, coming well, back. done. That's it. All right. Well, thanks very much for listening, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> um... What do you, yeah, you got what another do you, one? Chop <laughs> that. Um, no, for all this stuff, so the answer to this question really is, I think we've almost touched on it before. You, what is Australia? Australia is five years behind the rest of the world yeah. in drinking trends. South Australia, 15 years behind the rest of the world. No. Uh, that was Luke Campbell for anybody uh Keeping track. Send uh, send it a hate mail to Luke at Luke's talk one. No, it's Luke Campbell <laughs> at Vinified. Um, um five years. So what so yeah. that was that was me because obviously the trend that's around at the moment is 
Well, I don't, I don't like the term orange wine for many, many different reasons, partly because it, we have a region that make mm. wine in orange. It offends our friends in orange. Does it actually? I would imagine it would, but do you know? I don't know, but does? maybe. I don't, I don't know that officially, but I'm, I'm, I'm a bit like you. I think it would. It would, it would annoy me. It would, it would just, you know, just make my life harder. And I don't want it to be harder. No. Um, so what do we call a minimal intervention, that sort of wine? Or, yep. That's the current trends. But do you know what's happening overseas? Is there something else that's bubbling away in, in a cauldron somewhere that's, going to start hitting our shores is it going to be wine in cans is it going to be something weird i haven't even heard of like oh man i, I think sangria. single serve i think single serve wine yeah or like it's it's already happening top shelf wines are too often served in bottles like those single serve you know whether it's cans it or I, I think i think i think they're coming back i don't know if the single serve bottle is coming but whether it's people are looking at packaging all over the time, like I, in one of the next biggest trend, mark my words, listeners, one of the next biggest trends is single serve wine, whether that's in a juice box or whether that's oh. in a cup, a cup with a foil lid. You can't, whether, you can't, you can't put it in a juice box. How many kids well, I, are going to go to school with the little hope juice not. boxes? I hope not. But what they're trying to do is they're trying to reduce the packaging, make things sustainable. Oh, yeah. It's coming. It's coming, Mori. I, I know it's coming. Like is that bottles is definitely... not sustainable? As a bottles are recyclable more so. Oh, well, you know, you got to use the sand. I, I don't know. Like the, the, they're weighty. There's no uh, weight. Uh, transport weight. Yeah. Okay. It's a problem. It, it is really a problem. But um, so for me, those single serve. Is probably the next biggest trends. Um, there's no, there's no grape varietals that are kicking off into the horizon. I can't think of anything that's. There's always the talk of a new grape varietal, and it never really lasts longer than the length of the article it takes to read. Riesling, Riesling's got to be coming back. Yeah, it's always coming back. That's the that's the number one grape that's always coming back. Vermentino was the next big thing at one point. Very true. Yes. What did, what did we have? Um, all, all the plantings of Albarino that uh, didn't turn out to be Albarino, but that was oh, yeah. going to be the next big thing. <laughs> no, well, that that's in the past. What are some of the, what are the, some of the most exciting new kind of trends? Is it is it kind of style? Is it sustainability? This we need to answer Dan, Dan's it, questions yeah, here I because think I think it's a good one. I think it's it probably is the sustainability thing as as a trend. And I, I don't know if Dan yeah. was specifically thinking about you know drinking habits in terms of what goes in your mouth but the way the way it arrives to your door or you know that's probably is going to be the biggest shift in the next five ten years oh without a doubt i I think the other the other big shift and we certainly haven't seen it peak yet is the non-alcoholic slash low alcoholic we've discussed that on on the on the program before um, you know, this year was only the first ever non-alcoholic, long alcoholic, uh, low alcoholic wine show. This is where we're ground zero here. Like, oh, I think they are definitely a trend that's here to stay. It's not a fad that is here to stay. The other, the other one that kind of always rings true, and I get asked for it a lot more now than what I ever had before, it is rosé all year round. Like, rosé is no longer a summer drink. People are drinking it 
and, you know, distinctively crushable, lighter-bodied, fruitier reds. They're, drink, they're just considering rosé an all-year-round drink. And I think I don't think this is a fad. I think this is the search for that fleshier, fruitier-style wine uh, that's halfway between white and red. Do you think uh, that's think a little bit of a reflection of the lower alcohol nature of it as well? Well, maybe, but but rosé is not, you know, not, it's not typically lowish in alcohol. I like suppose you're right, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah right. I was just, yeah. Surmising. Now, I was just trying to guess at reasons because there's, there's, no, um, there's no real reason why it's had a, a, a hold-up to it being a year-round year drink rather than other than just the image that it's a, a summer summer drink. Well, yeah, people are just looking for that thirst quench without the intense, you know, 15% alcohol in, in summer. They want something that's a little bit lighter, a little bit fleshier, and boom, there it is, you know, in, in your white bottle with pink colour. Like it's just it's so in your face, it's frightening. But the wines that are being produced now, whether it be from Australia or the south of France or, you know, the coastal regions of Italy, wherever it comes from, they are much more um, adaptable and versatile, varietally and flavourful as well. So I think it's kind of a thing where people are just reaching for that fleshy flavour, in the, whether it's winter or summer, Murray. Do Do you think... Okay, so this is a bit of a tangent to what you were talking what we were talking yeah. about with freezing. But I'm up for tangents. Some, someone mentioned, um, I can't remember, I, I, I might get onto it, what the kids are drinking today. And we talked to, it, it was it was brought about how someone said to me, uh, oh, you know, kids aren't drinking much port these days. And it's like, they haven't been drinking port for a while, mate. I hate to break the news to you. That's been, <laughs> Surprise. It's been going downhill. <laughs> Sherry. I went to a theatre show a couple of weeks, a couple of months ago now, um, and you got a glass of sherry on arrival, and that was a delight. I mean, oh. everybody in there was, you know, 70 plus apart from me. I was, you know, south of 60. Anyway, they <laughs> uh, they were the sherry on arrival. I thought, Geez, bring that back. More yeah. theatre shows should give you a glass of, free, of sherry free, free to the event. Um, a little bit of an Amontillado or, you know, yeah. just even, even just a straight man's I, I think it was a good old cream sherry, down. mate. I hate, I hate to break oh. it to you. <laughs> so it's not even sherry, really. It's ah. just the sweet stuff. Let's <laughs> not, ah. not, not split hairs. Come on, we're all no, friends fair here. Enough, fair enough. Yeah, uh, fair <laughs> enough. Yeah, no. All right. Um, <laughs> but, you know, where are those trends going? Our kids are moving away from, you know, mum and dad Shiraz even. Is, is is the trend towards rosé partly driven by the youth? Oh, that that is that is so a millennial thing. And millennials, all of a sudden, they're they're just about making up, you know, seventy percent of the drinking public. So that's why you're seeing wines in cans. You're seeing low alcoholized people. You're seeing people moving away from yeah that that old old person's Shiraz or whatever because is, the millennials should, be, be are careful holding when in their say hands. old people because we're yeah, we're going to get there that. faster yeah, yeah we are. And no, anybody I, who thinks we're having a go at you for drinking sherry we like sherry don't worry. Yeah, we both love <laughs> sherry so uh, anyway, in fact, yeah. you mentioned Scott Wosley. I'm about to do a sherry masterclass with Scotty Wosley in, in Melbourne, and then we're oh. going to take it to Sydney. Scott, 
Please um, do. If you're listening, um, you're about to find out about that next Monday. But um, <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, only because I've had a lot of inquiries, particularly over the cold months here, based in Melbourne, you know, about sherry. Oh, you know, summer's coming and we're going to get, get back stuck into the sherry. And I'm, like you, Mori, I'm a firm yes on the sherry. I want dry styles. I want creamy styles. I want emotional styles that give me that saline goodness that I can pair with a oyster or a fried piece of fish. It's so tasty. Oh. Do you know what one of the best things I've had, and you may not like this, white bait. Just fried up white bait, a a sherry. I think I had that in um, Rioja, which I went, like the people who were serving us were really kind, but it wasn't what you do locally (laughs) because it's Rioja, it's not sherry. Yeah, but they gave us some sherry and some little little fridey white bait sort of things, and I could have sat there and done that all day. Oh yeah, allowed to though. We had to go to some place that didn't have that. I was annoyed, but for for anybody who wants to try to spice up their life, they can do a lot worse than drinking some sherry and some fighty little fishy morsels. Oh yeah, just get, just do yourself a favor, folks. Just go and have a look your local independent bottle shop and just ask them for a sherry. Don't even ask dry. Just say a hey, sherry yeah. and see what they give you. Take it's a trick. You got to go to the independent stores for that kind of stuff. Yeah. Because even if you just if you just want to try a sherry and you go to a chain store, they're they're definitely not going to have the stock that's rotating, and they're definitely not going to have the stuff that's worth. Because you, you, I remember Scott telling me something about how some of the sherries you've got to have that rotate rotation for them. They don't all last. No, know, and they've got they've like, got a, they've got a date agent. on them. They've got a date on them when they're a bottling date on a, on a sherry and. We should, we should do an episode. You and I would be the perfect people to do an episode on Sherry. Uh, but, yeah, for the listeners who are listening, uh, and there's, you know, mum and <laughs> And anybody Dan, who's not, by the way. And, and anybody who's not. Uh, there is a bottling date on it, actually, and so it tells you when that Sherry's been bottled. So as as Maurice says, go to the independents because they'll be the one that are turning over their Sherry's. Uh, the big the big liquors barns who reckon they're the cheapest in town will just have stuff that's probably not turning over as quick as you want you like. Uh, but yeah, you you might find a, a Montiato or a Palacortado or a Manzanilla or and um, all the rulings down there have recently changed, so you can get some great value with people. Big houses are trying to move their stock on, and they're just yeah, amazing. Bit of seafood, bit of anything fried. Uh, that loves potato, um, just just delicious. Just give it a try. Revisit your roots, peoples. Yeah. Hey, mate, it's just yeah. we've got to move on here. I'm con- yeah. cognizant of where we've been and where we're going. You can find me on the socials at vinified underscore wine underscore services. You can find Luke Morris at Luke Morris Ha. But most of all, just review, rate, and share the podcast. Share it with your friends. Share it with your families. Share it with your enemies. We don't mind. Just get it out there. Get amongst it. Vote in the hottest 100. We thank you for your support. Go. I was just going to say, tell, tell one person you know about voting. Tell, in the, and then you can maybe, like, skew the results. Do that. I just want more people to vote. That's all I want. <laughs> Do it. Get involved. We've loved having you. We've loved that you listen to us, and we really enjoy you supporting the podcast. This week has been a fruitful week and fun for us, as I hope it has you, the listening audience. But 
As always, and once again, in the words of Tony Barber, keep smiling and bye for now. Vinified are the wine cellar's specialists. We're Australia's only personal sommelier service. Our sommeliers work with you to build your cellar. Our aim is to bring you the wines from the freshest new producers, all based on your tastes. We can come to you, source your wines, present tastings. Think of Vinified as your wine concierge. We can do retail, we can do tastings, we can host your dinner parties, or we can procure you that rare wine. Vinified is proud to be associated with Luke's Talk Wine. www.vinified.com.au